Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We've got a whole lot of good news to share with you today, so Peter, why don't you start us off? Okay, let's go to New York City. The city council there has just passed a number of animal welfare laws, so we're excited about that. Two of them were ushered in by Justin Brannan. He's on the uh, city council. The first establishes the Office of Animal Welfare. Uh, This is the first city with an office dedicated to animal welfare. Brandon said that by establishing this office, the first of its kind in the nation, New York will lead the way as a city not only that cares about but prioritizes animal welfare. How's that? Mm. Animal-related issues will no longer be relegated to a disorganized bureaucratic morass of city agencies. The council also passed another Brannon-led bill calling upon legislators in Albany to ban puppy mills across the state of New York. So they're taking a stand against puppy mills, and we like that. Other laws that were passed includes a ban on horse-drawn carriages on hot or humid days, another law to prevent people from capturing pigeons and other wild birds, and finally, uh, forbidding the sale of foie gras. How about that one? A long time coming, according to Brannon. Well, Lori, I want to tell you a little bit about Justin Brannon. He's a colorful figure. First of all, he's a vegetarian, and he's been passionate about animals for decades. Uh, He used to be in a few bands, and as a love for heavy metal and hardcore punk, one of his bands was called Caninus, C-A-N-I-N-U-S, and two of their lead vocalists were Rescued Pitbulls. They would place these uh, pit bulls at the front of the stage and they would uh, join in the band. Um, yeah, he's colorful. They had songs which included New Yorkie Crew, Bite the Hand That Breeds You, and F the American Kennel Club. Oh, I like that one. So uh, that's Justin Brannon. We look forward to seeing what else he comes up with and good work. Okay, Lori, this is a really interesting story, a good story that comes out of Vietnam, reported by Global Wildlife Conservation, and uh, recently, as reported really in the journal Nature Ecology and Evolution, it was discovered that a small mammal that was felt to be extinct, or at least they hadn't seen it for 30 years, was uh, photographed, videoed and uh, photographed on uh, electronic camera traps. And the animal that they discovered or rediscovered is called the silver-backed chevrotain, C-H-E-V-R-O-T-A-I-N. And uh, you got to look at the pictures and the videos of this cute little thing. It's really small. It's deer-like, and it uh, looks sort sort of like a cross between a deer and maybe a baby kangaroo or something like that. It's really, really cute. And they thought it was gone, but evidently it's not. Hopefully this discovery will bolster the efforts in Vietnam to continue uh, protecting the environment and allow species like this one to continue to go on. So go to YouTube and check out the videos of the silver-backed chevrotain. And I must add, these are actually the first pictures ever obtained ever, ever, ever of this animal. Wow, fascinating. Really cool. What else you got there? Okay, Lori, uh, in the United Kingdom, the RSPCA the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, that covers England and Wales, uh, they have just issued a 10-point challenge to the future incoming government, featuring pretty impressive goals to improve the welfare of pets, wildlife, and farm animals. According to the RSPCA's Head of Public Affairs, David Bowles, 
Our 10-point manifesto challenges the next government to protect and improve animal welfare. And here are some of their goals. An end to live animal exports, an end to breed-specific legislation, increased sentencing for animal cruelty offenses, animal sentience recognized in law, high animal welfare standards in free trade agreements, a ban on non-stun slaughter, and animal welfare education in schools. That's great. Interesting. These are the same issues we've got on this side, Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. So uh, it is a manifesto, and it was uh, nice to see them put it out there. And Lori, I just have to share one more really good story, and this brings us to Russia. And this features a, a young boy. He is nine. His name is Pavel Abramov, and it turns out he's quite a little artist. He is a painter. When he was a little younger, he lost his uh, family pet, and it really had an impact on his mind. He just decided he couldn't bear to see stray animals suffering. And uh, like I said, he's quite a painter, and he started offering his commissioned paintings in exchange for donations to the local shelter that he was volunteering at. That's so wonderful. This guy's a nine-year-old boy. Nine-year-old. You have to go online also and see his paints. We'll post one of them on on the blog. And he's painting portraits uh, for dog and cat owners of their own pets. Is he good? He's really good. He's astonishingly good. So he sort of strikes up a deal. They have to donate you know, dog food or blankets or other necessities for the one shelter that's in town. And uh, he gives them a painting in exchange. What a creative little kid. He even has clients uh, in Europe. So he's an international figure. He wants to be an architect and to build an animal shelter when he gets older. But I think he's going to be very busy painting all the time. Mm. The project is called Kind Paintbrush. Is that sweet or what? So sweet. What's on your mind, Lori? Well, going from nine-year-old thoughtful, compassionate kid, let's go to a 19-year-old punk. Yeah. He broke into a Santa Ana Zoo, that's in California, and stole an endangered lemur. So this kid goes to the zoo with bolt cutters to cut a hole in the enclosure for lemurs and monkeys and stole a 32-year-old ring-tailed lemur named Isaac. This particular lemur is a Madagascar native and one of the 25 most endangered primates in the world. And Isaac is the oldest lemur in captivity in North America. And listen to this, Peter. This little punk, after stealing the lemur, he put him in a plastic drawer without ventilation and then abandoned him in front of a hotel in Newport Beach with two notes that said lemur with tracker. And this belongs to the Santa Ana Zoo. It was taken last night. Please bring it to police. Isaac the lemur's now fine. He's back at the zoo. And several animals who escaped their enclosure after it was opened by this punky kid were all recovered, according to the release. He was sentenced to three months in federal prison and to pay restitution of about $8,000 to the zoo. Tough enough sentence, Peter? No, not quite. And also, I think it's going to take him quite a while to come up with the $8,000 looking at his mugshot. He doesn't seem to be uh, gainfully employable. But one more thing I just want to say. It would seem to me that uh, zoos uh, ought to have better security than this permitted. Oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Lori, continuing on the theme of model citizens, let's go to Florida. They have their winners also. Two suspects have just been charged for poaching thousands of native turtles. Mm-hmm. One's a 39-year-old guy. The other's 23 
Uh, the first guy was charged with a number of animal offenses and uh, sale and offering turtles taken in the wild, possession of marine turtle parts, possession of black bear parts, possession of marijuana, possession and intent to sell drugs, possession of a controlled substance and other things. The other fellow, the 23-year-old, he was charged with things like sale of turtles taken from the wild and transporting wild-caught turtles without a permit. Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, they call that the FWC, they received a tip and they discovered a well-organized ring of wildlife traffickers who are illegally catching and selling wild turtles of all sorts all over the state. And they get exported out of the country and go to places like Asia. So sad. According to Craig Stanford, the chairman of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Tortoise and Freshwater Turtle Specialist Group, we know the global black market in live animals includes traffickers smuggling protected species of turtles out of the United States, usually for export to the Asian pet market. The species taken included... Florida box turtles, eastern box turtles, striped mud turtles, Florida mud turtles, and chicken turtles, as well as Florida softshell turtles. Also, the pair was found to be in possession of the skull and shell of a protected Kemp's Ridley sea turtle, the rarest species of sea turtle that's also on the critically endangered list. Hopefully, they'll throw the book at these two Boy Scouts as well. And just as a reminder, illegal commercialization of wildlife ranks fourth behind guns, drugs, and human smuggling, according to the FWC. Hmm. Lori, there's an interesting uh, story about the inventor of the Labradoodle. You want to hear about this? The inventor of the Labrador. Yes. So a breeder? Well, he was a breeder. His name's Wally Conran. And I'll just go to the end. He is not proud of his creation, okay? Yeah, he shouldn't be. But at the time, which was in the 80s, Uh, He received an inquiry from a woman in Hawaii who needed a guide dog who would not shed because her husband was allergic. So he decided to cross a poodle with a Labrador and created the Labradoodle, the first one. Since then, many other kinds of uh, designer dogs have come along. As you know, the, the Golden Doodle, the Cockapoo, and other silly names like this. And these are way too popular than they should be. And it becomes a fad. You bet. And the goal of this one was to provide the non-shedding coat quality. Of course, that does not happen reliably when you mix these. Uh, The Labradoodle is a hybrid, not a pure breed, even though he advertised it as a new breed, a new dog, the Labradoodle. And once the marketing sort of strategy hit, then it started becoming really popular. But there is a variability in the features, including the coats, and some of the dogs, therefore, actually trigger allergy. Here's what Conran said. I opened a Pandora's box. That's what I did. I released a Frankenstein. So many people are just breeding for the money. So many of these dogs have physical problems, and a lot of them are just crazy. He continues his lament. Go on the internet and verify it for yourself. All these backyard breeders have jumped on the bandwagon and they're crossing any kind of dog with a poodle. They're selling them for more than a purebred is worth and they are not going into the backgrounds of the parents of the dogs. There are so many poodle crosses having fits, seizures, right? Problems with their eyes, hips, and elbows, and a lot of them have epilepsy. There are a few ethical breeders, but very, very few. That's very well stated. Isn't that interesting? Yes. So that comes from the inventor of the Frankenstein Labradoodle. Yeah, he really made a boo-boo, big boo-boo. Okay, that's all I got, Lori. 
Well, that was a good way to end this segment. Thanks, Peter. Okay, don't go away. More with animals today, right after the break. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals, now in our 11th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Lori and I want to tell you about a company we just love, Vistro. Vistro, spelled V like Victor, E-E-S-T-R-O. They deliver fully prepared vegan meals straight to your door anywhere in the lower 48 states. And we just love their variety and the really wonderful flavors. And if you're like us, some nights you just don't feel like cooking. These meals are really good. Their chefs use the best organic ingredients in the market, and they handcraft each meal. They are shipped frozen in insulated boxes with plenty of dry ice. And when your box arrives, you just pop them in the freezer until you're ready to heat up your meal. We love eating delicious, healthy, plant-based foods, and Vistro meals are organic and contain no added preservatives. What a great addition to our home menus. Check them out at vistro.com. You're going to love Vistro like we do, Vistro.com. There's a topic that we really haven't explored or covered on animals today, and that is pet nutrition. Even though we all want to give our companion animals healthy diets, we've let our other news sources cover this area, such as veterinary-oriented radio shows and podcasts. But recently, I came across this article asking the question, can dogs be fed a completely vegan diet and still be healthy? And I have to tell you, it's complicated, and I wasn't able to come to any conclusion on my own. So we've invited an expert to help answer the question and others related to nutrition in dogs, Maybe we'll do cats another time. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Valerie Parker, DVM. She's associate professor at the Ohio State University Veterinary Medicine Medical Center. She is board certified in small animal internal medicine and clinical nutrition. Welcome to the program, Valerie. Thank you. Valerie, more and more people are consuming plant-based diets. And I found that there's a strong interest in this particular group and having their dogs consume vegan diets as well. Can this be done safely? It is possible to feed dogs vegetarian and vegan diets, but it must be done extremely cautiously. There are several very um, significant adverse effects that can happen if a dog is fed an unbalanced vegetarian or vegan diet. And there can be uh, fatal complications associated with it. Can you go into that a little bit? Yes. One of my biggest concerns when it comes to feeding a dog either a vegetarian or vegan diet is ensuring that the dog is getting all the essential amino acids that it needs. And amino acids are part of what you're getting when you eat different protein sources. Any food ingredient, whether it's a meat or a legume or soy or any other type of protein, they all carry their own distinct amino acid profiles. Meats and eggs generally are going to have more um, appropriate amino acid profiles for dogs. When you start to feed more plant-based protein sources to dogs, you do have to worry about certain amino acids being deficient. One of the most important amino acids that we can see deficiencies of in dogs fed vegetarian or vegan diets is methionine. Whenever an animal gets not enough methionine, 
and or some other essential amino acids, that the, the most dire consequence we can see is taurine deficiency developing. Because in a dog, dogs theoretically should not need to ingest any amount of taurine if they get enough methionine and cysteine, which are two amino acids. If they don't get enough, they can become taurine deficient. Mm -hmm. And what can happen with taurine deficiency is the development of a certain type of heart disease, dilated cardiomyopathy or DCM, which can be fatal if a patient goes into heart failure. Thank you for explaining that. And this goes for the same as being vegetarian, correct? Yes. Vegetarian and vegan diets will be similar in that main concern for amino acid deficiencies. Now, there are other nutrients that absolutely need to be considered. It's not just all about amino acids. Um, you know, anytime an owner wants to feed any diet, whether it's a home-prepared diet or a commercial diet, we always want to make sure that the dog is getting a sun enough of all of its required vitamins and minerals. And so certain food sources are going to be higher or lower in certain vitamins and minerals and specifically when it comes to home cooked options almost all home cooked diet options that i've seen people feeding out there almost all of them tend to be severely deficient in calcium even dogs that are getting vitamin and mineral supplements many times still aren't getting enough calcium because mm. dogs have very different requirements from people and so using many human supplements will not suffice. And even a lot of the veterinary ones that are marketed still do not provide all of the essential vitamins and minerals that a dog might need. Other thing that can happen with vegetarian and vegan diets is when you're using ingredients that are, let's say, legumes, for instance, very high in fiber, those ingredients can also affect the bioavailability of other nutrients. So a dog might not absorb all the nutrients that theoretically are in an ingredient if the ingredients are high in fiber or otherwise affecting the um, amount that can be effectively absorbed from the gastrointestinal tract. Valerie, another popular craze these days is the raw food diet for dogs, and we've read about and reported on the risks of bacterial contamination. What are your thoughts in the current science on these raw diets? I generally do not recommend raw diets for a few reasons, um, and it really does come down to what type of raw diet it is to be even more specific with a client about to, in order to have a good discussion. So raw diets range quite a bit. There are commercially available raw diets, and then there are also home-prepared raw diets. And most home-prepared raw diets, once again, will not be providing complete and balanced nutrition. So. I do worry quite a bit predominantly about nutritional inadequacy or a dog not getting all of the nutrients, vitamins, and minerals that it needs when it eats a home-prepared raw diet. When it comes to commercial raw diets, um, hopefully they're, they're getting all the vitamins and minerals they need, hopefully, if it's, um, if it's formulated appropriately. But like you said, there are significant concerns for infectious disease transmission and not even not even just to the dog eating the diet, but more importantly almost than that is the, is the human or the pet owner or the multiple pet owners coming into contact with the food as well as any other people or animals coming into contact with that animal's feces. Salmonella is probably the most commonly isolated pathogen or bacteria from raw foods, 
But most dogs, even if they ingest salmonella and are shedding it, won't necessarily show any clinical signs. So they don't have to look sick and they don't have to get diarrhea to be shedding salmonella wherever they they go and wherever they defecate. So I do worry about uh, just an overall global health perspective about who else is coming into contact with that animal's feces, who else is going to be put at potential risk for contracting salmonellosis. And I worry especially in um, very young and very old people, those that are immunocompromised, and even especially in dogs that are receiving drugs that suppress their immune system or dogs that have chronic infection, whether that be urinary tract infections or chronic pneumonia, I worry about those animals being put at higher risk for developing additional bacterial infections when eating a raw diet. Okay, don't go away. We're going to continue our discussion with veterinarian Valerie Parker about nutrition for our dogs right after the break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're speaking with Dr. Valerie Parker about nutrition in our dogs. Earlier, you mentioned taurine deficiency associated with a vegetarian or vegan diet and the risks of cardiomyopathy. There was a recent story I read of cardiomyopathy being linked to grain-free diet for dogs. What do you think about grain-free diets? So there are two main questions here. What do I think about grain-free diets? And then additionally, what has been reported about the link between grain-free diets and cardiomyopathy. So my general approach is that grains are absolutely nutritious sources of both protein, fiber, vitamins, and minerals for dogs. And so there's nothing bad about grains for dogs at all. And for some dogs, grain-free diets can be appropriately used as well, especially for dogs that have specific food intolerances or dogs that have special dietary needs where they need to be on, let's say, a limited ingredient or limited antigen diet. But there's a second side of the story, which is that in the last few years, there's been a massive uptick in the number of dogs diagnosed with dietary-associated dilated cardiomyopathy, or DCM, and this is still a major work in progress. There are researchers all over the country trying to determine what is actually the cause here. There is a link, and it is not a specific cause-effect. There is a link between certain types of diets and the development of DCM in some dogs. This link is related to a few different kinds of diets that have been coined with this term BEG, B-E-G, boutique boutique companies, exotic ingredients, and grain-free. So it's not always that it's going to be a grain-free diet, but it may be a diet that has a very um, considered exotic ingredient. So for instance, pork and squash 
um, would be considered an exotic ingredient diet because those are not typical conventional protein and carbohydrate sources that have for years been in dog food. So there is a link with both taurine deficiency inducing dilated cardiomyopathy, but in a lot of the dogs that have recently been diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy that is presumed to be diet-induced, many of those dogs have normal taurine levels. So it's not just about low taurine. And the veterinary community is working really hard to figure out what is in fact going on. Some theories are that, is it possibly that, again, like we mentioned earlier, that there might be an amino acid deficiency contributing. There is a concern that it, it we really don't even know if it might be a toxicity in some of these diets causing cardiomyopathy or some other nutrient deficiency altogether, as in people, several other nutrients have been linked to cardiomyopathies. Mm. So it, what has been shown, though, is that diets, many diets that are coined bag diets have been linked as well as many diets that have um, lentils or peas as the primary carbohydrate ingredient. Again, these are higher fiber diets. Is the fiber affecting bioavailability of amino acids or any other nutrient that could potentially be contributing to this disease? Valerie, some people really advocate cooking their own dog food at home from scratch. That seems like it might be a very healthy way to go, but very time-consuming. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I I speak quite a bit to clients about whether or not home cooking is appropriate or the best thing for their pets, and I have a few general comments about home-cooked diets. I think that there is really um, no research to indicate that for most pets that a home-cooked diet would be any better for a pet than any other good quality commercial diet. There are very few... Um, disease processes where home-cooked diet may truly be considered the absolute best thing for a pet. But regardless, many clients, many pet owners do want to feed for their pets. And so if I have a dog owner or a pet owner who really feels strongly that that is the way that he or she wants to proceed, that feeding a home-cooked diet is what is going to work best for that owner and that dog, then my recommendations are simple absolutely consult with a veterinary nutritionist. Get assistance from an expert because there are so many recipes that people will find online, in books, they will make up their own, and studies have analyzed hundreds of recipes that people will find in order to cook for their pets, hundreds of recipes. And in in one big study in dogs and a recent one in cats as well, probably over 95% of the recipes have been shown to have at least one, if not multiple, nutrient deficiencies. Mm. And so it can be quite dangerous to do a home-cooked diet if it is not done appropriately. If it is done appropriately, it is a, it can be a great thing for a pet owner to feel that bond with his or her dog, but it has to be done under the guidance of a nutritionist who can ensure that the diet recipe is, in fact, providing complete and balanced nutrition. Okay. So let's talk about dog food labels and packaging. Is there anything useful or important that we can learn by reading these carefully? You know, in in human food, many people look for certain attributes like non-GMO, gluten-free, organic, and such. Does any of this translate to the dog food universe? 
some of the same labels do apply, but um, you have to be careful how much weight you put in anything on a pet food label. And there are certain pieces of information that by law have to be on a pet food label. There have to be certain claims. There has to be an AFCO statement. AFCO is the Association of American Feed Control Officials. There has to be a statement saying whether that diet is designed to provide complete and balanced nutrition or not. And it has to say how that claim is substantiated. If it was done via feeding tests, which have very clear definitions, or if it was formulated to meet on paper, essentially on the computer. It also has to say what life stage the food is designed to um, be fed to. So is it for puppies, kittens, is it for growth? That's a life stage. Or is it for adult maintenance? Lactation and gestation are also life stages that can be claimed. And all life stages implies puppyhood, adulthood, and gestation lactation. What is not a specific claim that has any specific nutritional requirements is senior. There, there are many, many, you know, it's a billion-dollar industry, multi-billion-dollar industry, and almost all pet foods will have senior diets, but there's no consistency about what a senior diet is. So that's kind of a whole nother topic, but I'm just kind of alluding to what you can actually use on a pet food label that can have meaning. Um, you want to be cautious not to let the marketing on a, on a pet food label sway you too much. So of the terms you mentioned, um, the only one that has a legal definition is to claim whether a food is organic or not. There are legal definitions, and pet foods have to follow the same rules as human foods for claiming organic. But, um, you know, gluten-free is not a concern for 99.9% of our pet population. Only one dog breed has ever been shown to have a gluten sensitivity, and that's Irish setters. Otherwise, dogs can tolerate gluten just fine for the most part. Um, and the other thing that just in the last few years has become mandated to be included on pet food labels, which is really important, is calorie density. So how many calories per cup, how many calories per can. Until 2017, that wasn't even required to be there. And I think that that is very helpful for pet owners, especially as they're trying to determine how much to feed their pets and as we're trying to battle obesity, which is the number one nutrition epidemic facing dogs and cats these days. Valerie, let's talk about treats and snacks. Any specific things to look for or avoid? For treats and snacks, the most important thing is to ensure that they provide no more than about 10% of an animal's total daily intake. So um, it's really important that we ensure that treats are not making up a large percentage of a dog or a cat's daily caloric intake. It really comes down to the individual animal to decide what is optimal for that pet. You know, with certain disease conditions, we might want to do low fat or low calorie. Um, but for the most part, my main recommendations are just to be extremely cautious with the high calorie densities of a lot of commercial treats. I, I caution people to be um, minimal with their dental chews and rawhides. I think that those a lot of times added a lot of unnecessary calories and can even potentially be dangerous right. if a pet swallows too big of a piece. Right. And 
there are certain people foods that are toxic that should just be avoided, such as grapes and raisins, onions and garlic. But otherwise, I really do like using fresh fruits and vegetables for pets as treats. And then just finding a couple of commercial treats that the pet might like, um, as long as we're watching calorie density. And I've found that almost every dog I've had likes raw carrots and apples. I think carrots and apples are great treats. I like cucumbers, green beans, um, berries or melon in the summer are great treats. And then it just depends on what's available seasonally and what is easy to come by otherwise. Any other fruits or vegetables that should be avoided? Grapes, raisins, onions, and garlic are toxic for dogs great. and cats. Can dogs get into trouble by consuming too much salt like humans can, for instance, if they are eating table scraps? Uh, only certain disease processes would be associated with the need for feeding lower salt foods. For the most part, dogs and cats can tolerate higher salt foods, but um, it is important to speak to your veterinarian if your dog has any health conditions that might influence that. So heart disease is probably the most common where we're going to recommend feeding a lower salt diet. Heart disease is probably the most common disease where we're going to pay really close attention to an animal's salt intake. And there are certain diseases where where we might intentionally increase an animal's salt intake with certain types of bladder stones. Some of the veterinary therapeutic diets are formulated to increase salt intake, to drive thirst, and to keep the urine dilute. And that's one of the ways that we try to reduce the risk of bladder stone formation is by keeping the urine dilute. Veterinarian Valerie Parker, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Your Animals Today fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle, including their two opposable digits to grip branches and depict the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Many of our listeners will be familiar with the charming activity called mutton busting. Actually, there's a group of uh, youth activities, I think they're referred to as scrambles or scramble type activities uh, related to the rodeo, and they abuse the animals for uh, entertainment. Our next guest, Eric Mills, who is coordinator of Action for Animals, has been working very hard for a long time to educate uh, everybody and hopefully uh, change what's going on there. Hello, Eric. Welcome back. Hello, Peter. Thanks. It's good to be here. For those uninitiated, uh, tell us about mutton busting and related activities. Well, I've been working on rodeo issues, Lord, for about 35 years now. The standard events are bad enough, but a lot of rodeos around the country are putting on non-sanctioned events for public entertainment, which involves non-professional cowboys who can take part. 
the local yokels and the kids and whatnot. And one of the biggest right now is called mutton busting, in which children ages usually four to seven years old are coerced into riding terrified sheep. There's no spurs involved. They just hang on to the wall. The kids usually have helmets and vests, not always. And they cling on the sheep for two or three seconds. Well, the sheep are terrified. The kids are often in tears. There's a wonderful quote from Dr. Temple Grandin. says that the single worst thing you can do to an animal emotionally is to make it feel afraid. Fear is so bad for animals, I think it's worse than pain. Well, that alone should be enough to stop all of rodeo in my book. But this mutton bust event, for the first time ever, was done at the Rail Ranch Rodeo here in Castro Valley, California, just in the San Francisco East Bay, for the first time three years ago. And I helped to write that policy back in 1986, I think it was, after a series of injuries and deaths at the rodeo. Three years ago, they started doing mutton busting for the very first time. And I love this. The director of the Rodeo Association for Rail Ranch told the director of the East Bay uh, SPCA, Allison Lindquist, at a public hearing that they did the event for the first time ever, three years ago, partially as a thumb in the eye of Eric Mill. Oh, great. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so let's endanger children, abuse animals, just to tick off the activists. It's beyond stupid. But here we are. But I had the great good pleasure this week, after a two-year campaign, we got the County Board of Supervisors to pass a ban, three to two, to ban mutton busting throughout the unincorporated areas of the county, which covers the Rail Ranch at Rodeo and also the Alameda County Fair in Pleasanton. It's in the city limits, but the administration said that they would abide by the same rule. The Cowboys are not happy. We had about a two-hour hearing, 16 speakers for the animals and 18 speakers for the Cowboys, and their argument was, this is an attack upon agriculture. Yeah. I said, no, 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 get real here. I says, mutton busting has nothing to do with rodeo, and rodeo has nothing to do with agriculture. It's all hype, it's bogus events just for fun and games, and all these animals are en route to the slaughterhouse anyway, so let's have a good time and scare them and screw them over just for entertainment before we eat them. It's just beyond the pale. But this 3-2 to two victory was a, a big deal. It's getting all kinds of good coverage. Mutton busting has been outlawed in New Zealand for about three years now at the behest of the New Zealand Veterinary Association, which deemed the sheep unfit, un, not built, to carry the weight. So that's encouraging. I think we are on a roll now. We'll see. Now, listeners, if they're not familiar, they can view these videos of examples of these terrified kids and animals online? Yeah. You can go to YouTube and just type in mutton busting. There are a bunch of videos out there. And, it's, and, it, and like you said, it's not a training ground for future cowboys or anything, really. It's just like well, fun. As it happens, I think it is. Oh. The cowboys are worried they're going to lose their audience. So they start the kids on the mutton busting event, and then they graduate into calf riding, and then steer riding, and then bull riding, and bronco riding. So it's an ongoing thing just to keep their audience. It's, it's mostly rural folks, and I can appreciate, you know, being involved with animals, but not to abuse them like this. California State Education Code 6000, excuse me, 60042 mandates that public ed- education, K-7, they have to teach kind- kindness to animals and humane treatment thereof. So this mutton busting event is a direct violation of that. Three, two years ago now, we tried to get the 
both the hard board and the board of supervisors to ban the wild cow milking contest and all the animal scrambles. Now, wait a second. Wild, where are, wild, wild cow milking contest? What, what is that? Oh, well, it's a treat. There's a good one online, too. Uh, a lot of rodeos around the country feature another non-sanctioned event called wild cow milking contest in which beef cattle not dairy cattle, beef cattle, which are completely unused to being handled. They find the lactating cows who still have a calf nursing at their side, separate, separate the babies from the mothers, which puts on a lot of stress. And then two cowboys, one on horseback, last sells her and tries to bring her to a halt. And another guy called the mugger runs out and holds the, the mugger. cow's head. The mugger. While the guy on the horse jumps off and tries to put couple of drops of milk into a Coke bottle and then run back to the finish line. <laughs> well, one of these, they're really stressed out. And one of these cows at the 2014 Royal Ranch Rodeo jumped the fence, landed on her head, broke her neck, had to be euthanized, and left an orphan calf. Mm. I have a wonderful quote from a close friend, Dr. Peggy Larson, who is a, a lawyer and a veterinarian and former bronc rider, wrote to the hard board, that, that's a Hayward Area Reckon Park District, that she was reminded of rape cases that she has tried in state court the way these cowboys were manhandling this poor cow. And it's true. It's, yeah. If they can't make that connection, I mean, there's something seriously wrong with us. So we're trying to get that event banned also. It's scheduled for next year at the Rail Ranch and also at the Livermore Rodeo. I'd hope the Board of Supervisors would ban that issue, too, but they didn't. They went just for the mutton busting, which is a good first step. But I think the public is really with us. Do children participate in any other of these scramble-type events, or just the mutton-busting? Uh, at the Rail Ranch, just the mutton-busting. There are a lot of others around where they have pig scrambles and calf scrambles and chicken scrambles. On a brighter note, the Sonoma County Fair this year canceled their pig scramble, and now the kids are just doing a, a watermelon scramble. Everybody's having a great time, and animals are not getting hurt. Yeah. They still do the pig scrambles, too, over at the uh, Woodside Rodeo down the peninsula from San Francisco. We got video of a stock handler three years ago, I think, picking up a baby pig by the tail and throwing him off the truck. It's just brutal stuff. The piglets are screaming, the kids are hollering. Some kid's going to get a pig's hoof in the eye yeah. or in the mutton-busting vent. Some kid's going to get killed or paralyzed. It's, it's inevitable, and it's so stupid and pointless. I, I don't... But it's entertaining for many, and there's probably some money involved down the path. There's another health concern that people who let their kids in the uh, mutton-busting event should be aware of. A little boy in Texas about 10 years ago named Derek Scott, yeah, Derek Bubba Scott, got a mouthful of arena dirt after falling off his sheep. And he got a mouthful of E. coli-infected dirt. Yeah. He, Went into a two-week coma, swelled up twice his normal size, developed heart, lung, and kidney failure, and damn near died. Yeah. Every rodeo arena in the world is infected with E. coli. So parents are putting their children's lives at risk when they do this. Frankly, I think they should be cited for child endangerment as well as animal abuse. We really need to do a lot better on this. Eric Mills, uh, thank you so much for your decades of dedicated work, and congratulations on what you are accomplishing right now. Thank you, Peter, and back at you. You guys are doing great work. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 